0: If you're here this morning, I just want to say thank you for spending the the day with us. Um, I hope you're here this morning, right? Maybe physically, but I want to ask you to mentally check in with us too as well. Uh, if if uh, you're visiting with us, uh, uh, I want to encourage you, we're going through a series together called um, Jesus, and we're simply looking at the nature of who Jesus is and, how, and what that means for us as people and how it relates to us in life. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, 26, excuse me, I invite you to turn there into your Bible. We're going to launch from John chapter 1 in, into Matthew chapter uh, 26. We're, we're three weeks into this series together on identifying Jesus, and I, I've got one... goal for us this morning. We're going to take a a very specific look at Christ, step back for a moment and appreciate the panoramic view of Jesus from the Gospels uh, for the purpose of achieving one goal. When it comes to the nature of who Christ is uh, from a religious perspective, uh, too often our souls argue over belief rather than marveling at Christ. And, um, I want to take the opportunity we have this morning in teaching some theological truths about Jesus to marvel at the nature of who Jesus is. And as we walk out this morning, if your heart feels feels more compelled and and more in love with who Christ is, then we're going to call that a victory for us as a church. When it comes to, to Jesus, there is little historical evidence on what Jesus looked like. The Byzantines in the 4th century, in order to make him seem more as a symbol of power, began to uh, illustrate Jesus with large beards. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6 seem to indicate that Christ may have, in fact, had a beard. Uh, The Victorians, when they came along and began to illustrate Christ, drew him as a blonde-haired Jesus, (laughs) which doesn't fit to where Jesus is even from. Over the, the 50 mainstream films that were made, uh, have been made about Christ, none of them have been played by a Jewish person. But we know for certain that Jesus was a man... The Bible tells us he was born of a woman. He had a normal body of flesh and blood, uh, uh, of bones. He, he grew up as a boy. He he had a, a family. He was obedient to his parents. He prayed. He worked as a carpenter. He got hungry and thirsty. He asked for information. He was stressed. He was astonished. He was happy. He told jokes. He had compassion, gave encouraging encouraging compliments. He, he loved children. He celebrated the holidays. He went to parties. And My personal favorite, he, he loved his mama. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 in verse 3, he was a man of low view. The verse says this, he was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus even had the opportunity to maybe to, to surround himself being, being a, a human of low esteem, to, to look cool by the crowd he kept. And, and when it came to keeping that crowd, when Jesus twove, chose the 12 individuals that would follow him, they were not the prominent people of society. Like one time, Jesus, he had the opportunity to look cool here. And the people that you choose... I mean, in, in, his, in, his, in his life, when a rabbi would choose disciples to follow them during this, this time in which Christ was walking the earth, there were famous teachers throughout the land of Israel known as, uh, as rabbis, and disciples would flock to the rabbis, especially if they were good ones, and they would sign up to, to follow this rabbi, and then the rabbi would get to choose from the pickings of who he desired to follow after. When it came to Jesus, people didn't choose him. He chose them. On one end of the spectrum, he he chooses one of the most hated individuals in in Jewish society, the the tax collector, Matthew. And on the other side of that, he, he chooses the zealot who opposes the extreme that the tax collector represents with Peter who's always shooting off at the mouth and getting him in trouble. And in between that, he has a bunch of fishermen. The Bible tells us but Jesus was indeed a man. But Jesus was more than a man. Sometimes when you hear people talk about Jesus, they present to him more like a, as if he were an, a boring individual, more like a, people oftentimes talking about Christ sound more excited about an upcoming root canal than, than Jesus. Yet when you read about Jesus in the Bible, No one was ever bored with Jesus. And when you see Christ for who he is, he is profound and he is worthy of worship. We don't need to know the specifics of how he looked to know that he was incredible. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, if you haven't memorized this yet, you will by the time we're over because we pick this as a launching point every time we start. But it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Some translations say, and we beheld his glory. And as we've gone through this text together, we see two natures of Jesus colliding within these phrases. Jesus became flesh. He he became man. The Hebrews chapter one and verse three says he is the radiance of the Father, the exact imprint of, of his nature. Jesus became flesh and at the same time we saw his glory and the Bible tells us in Isaiah in chapter 40 that God desires to give his glory to no other and by noting that Jesus, he is glorious, the Bible is pointing to his, his deity and in fact in John 1 John says that in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God there are some theological terms they have placed on passages of the Bible like this that reference the nature of, of who Jesus is. Some of the, the terms they, they've used are, are, are this, phrase, this phrase called hypostatic union and talking about the coming of Jesus in the flesh. It's the kenosis of Christ, which to me sounds like my future superhero name, Captain Kenosis, who has the superpower of the hypostatic union, Right? But when it comes to Jesus, it's, it's, in its definition, it's simplistic in, in helping us understand who Christ is and his coming to the earth. This hypostatic union represents the two natures of Jesus being demonstrated in his flesh. He is 100% God and he is 100% man having become flesh. In Jesus, these natures collide perfectly in his identity. And the kenosis of Christ is the emptying of Jesus. He, he is the nature of God, but in that he's living as a sermon. He is limited in his deity, but he is not eliminated from his deity. Philippians 2 speaks beautifully into the nature of who Jesus is, beginning in verse 5. Though being in the form of God, He tells us it's something in which he he doesn't uh, have us grasp, but rather comes into the form of a servant. Becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. These two natures demonstrated in the kenosis of who Christ is. To explain this hypostatic union, let me just give a a few thoughts in this God and man coming together. Uh, The Bible teaches us if he had not been fully man, he would not have been able to die for man. Had he not been fully God, he would not have been able to conquer sin, Satan, and death and give life to all who believe. Because he was the son of man, he became hungry. Because he was the son of God, he fed thousands with loaves. Because he was the son of man, he became thirsty. Because he was the son of God, he turned water into wine. Because he was the son of man, he grew weary. Because he was the son of God, he could raise the dead. Because he was the son of man, he grew older. Because he is the son of God, he is ageless, the Alpha and Omega. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. In, in a, an article written from the researchers of the, the World Almanac Book of Facts, they asked 208th graders to name some prominent people they had admired in life. After the results were published, a common, a communist, a columnist by the name of, of Sidney Harris lamented over the results in, in the state of, of America that he saw it from what he read from the results of these 2008 graders who were asked to name a prominent person they admired. He recognized from the list of the top 30 individuals in which young people had recognized in their lives, there was no one beyond the realm of actors and athletes of which they had admired. To which the columnist said this to the children. He said heroes and heroines to the kids are people who have made it big, not necessarily people have done big things Jesus becoming flesh no doubt he is God but the way Jesus demonstrates himself on this earth wasn't by lifting and elevating himself above people but rather serving beneath them for their benefit and to his glory When Jesus became the nature of God in the flesh, having emptied himself in the kenosis, we refer to this as the incarnation of Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us. John recognized not only that Jesus being the God man in his nature, he he tells us why this was important. He said he says in 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 first John chapter one and verse twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He 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 explains to us the significance of, of this carnation when God now becoming flesh, he says, no one has seen God at any time in verse 18. That previous, this God, God had not been flesh, but now God has become personal, God has become real, God has become for us something that we can look at and behold with our own eyes. God had not been flesh, and now Jesus takes on the form of flesh. In fact, some have even asked, as it relates to the Father, didn't the Father have flesh and bone? Well, the Bible tells us no one has seen God at at any time. But if you look further within Scripture, it tells us in John chapter 4 and verse 24 that God is spirit. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39 that a spirit has no flesh and bones. But now in Jesus, God has become flesh. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten, full of grace and truth. I think it's important in recognizing the significance of Jesus in serving us to see him for who he is. There was this passage in, in the book of Matthew in chapter 26, verse 39, in which I'm just going to highlight for us the, the significance of, a, of it for our lives and identifying the importance of, of, of who Christ is and, and why this passage is important to us in revealing the humanity and deity of Jesus and colliding together. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and seeing Christ for who He is, there is no passage, maybe for, for me especially, that speaks more crucially to, to the nature of Christ than, than this statement. Not only does it unfold for me who he is, but, but it also shares with us why he came. And What is Jesus saying here? It says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, and he went a little beyond them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the disciples were with him and he asked them to pray for, them, pray for him. He's about to take sin upon his shoulders and, and he goes off and he prays. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the night in which Jesus will be betrayed and the night for which Christ was about to be crucified. His prayer to the Father is to let this cup pass from Him. And you know, for years I, I, I've looked at this passage, and 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 I often thought, "Oh, I think Jesus is praying for the cross. He doesn't. He doesn't want to endure the cross." And so, and, and so, looking at this, I, I began to see the humanity of Christ and praying that God doesn't send him to the cross. But the more I thought about it, the the less I was inclined to embrace that answer. And the reason is, is because Jesus and his entire life was. Centered around his death. And John said in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. From the beginning of, of Genesis in chapter 3, the coming uh, uh, of Jesus for the sins of mankind as a sacrifice has been foretold. Jesus knew this moment was going to arrive. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And it was ridiculous for, for me to conceive of Jesus now deciding he didn't want the cross. In fact, he willingly walks to Jerusalem and he willingly takes on the nails. And the Bible tells us at any moment he could have called a company of angels to rescue him from those moments. I don't think Jesus is praying God keep the cross from me. I think Jesus was even honest to us when he told us as individuals that we will endure tribulation because of our faith faith in Christ. Coming to Jesus doesn't necessarily always make life easier. In fact, some of the things that Christ calls us to in this world in crucifying our flesh we may recognize in some ways it may make it difficult. It may make relationships difficult. Jesus may be recognizing in this passage that the cross ahead of him is a challenge. But I think the prayer that Jesus is praying goes far deeper than the cross he's about to endure. In Matthew 27, it gives us a little bit of a background to Jesus' statement. Let's skip too far. In verse 46, this is the last statement Jesus utters before the Bible tells us, and he gives up his life in Matthew 27. It says in Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in these moments is recognizing for us well, it's truly at stake through His crucifixion on the cross. The Bible told us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It, it is talking about the relationship of the triune God. In, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, it says, Let us make man in our image. And in verse 27, it says, In the image of God, He made Him, the triune God, formulating man in, in His image. And so when Jesus is praying this prayer, God, my my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus reveals the nature behind why he would pray such a prayer in Matthew 27 and verse 46 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself is taking upon the sins of the world. And to this point, he and and the Father have experienced perfect harmony in their relationship with one another. They are united. In fact, Jesus says in John ten thirty that I and the Father are one. And now for the first time in all of history, Jesus is going to take on sin and the Father is going to turn his back on Jesus as he becomes the propitiation for sin on our behalf. There is a separation between the relationship of the Father and the Son. I I don't understand how it happens. I I have no idea how to even explain it or to grasp it, but Jesus in these moments is quoting from Scripture, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Given insight to the passage, let this cup pass from me. The reality is, separation in relationships is painful. It cuts at you. It can keep you up, At night. And some of the ignorant things we do as people in life come after a division in relationships. We say foolish things out of hurt feelings. We react in hate because we hurt. And all of this points to the fact that separation is painful and relationships are important. In your life, have you ever lost something you didn't want to give up? In these moments, you can relate to Jesus. But the good news in Christianity is that losing isn't the end. You know, in every religion in the world, when it comes to losing, when it comes to evil, when it comes to to feeling the suffering, especially in separation, every belief in the world has to give an account. You think of, of when it comes to death as Jesus is experiencing here, uh, I, I think Christianity's end is, is beautiful. The loss, the loss here in these moments isn't the end of the story, but when it comes to uh, philosophies like atheism or agnosticism, death wins in the end. When it comes to religion, it's based on you and you have to get yourself out of purgatory by the way that you earn your stature. But when it comes to Christianity, it's all based on Jesus, and he wins, and we get the opportunity to celebrate. It's not saying to us that God gets glory in our sin. But rather, God gets the glory through the victory over sin. We consider this passage between the relationship of God and man. We look at his relationship between Jesus and the Father, but when we consider the relationship between God and man, Jesus and man, we can ask the question why would Jesus endure such separation between the Father? Why would he take this sin upon himself? What would drive Jesus to do this? There was a a story that I read recently about Babe Ruth. Seven hundred and fourteen home runs, the idol of American baseball. And towards the end of the of his career he wasn't quite the individual he was in his prime. And this particular story, Babe Ruth takes the field and he goes out and his team is on the field and the opposing team is batting. And Babe Ruth has so many horrific errors within that inning particularly that it caused or allowed the other team to score five runs because of his mistakes. And the story goes, at the end of his career, as he's walking back to the dugout, the crowd just just boos uh, at his performance, and, and they didn't want to embrace it, and this young boy is in the audience, and, and tears start streaming down his eyes, and he's looking at his childhood hero being shamed, and and he runs out on, on the field, and he just runs to Babe Ruth, and the story tells us that Babe Ruth looks at the in, in, this young boy running at him, and he picks him up, and he lifts him up, and he just hugs him, and the crowd goes silent. On the field, they were booing the performance of who Babe Ruth was, but in these moments, they see a different side of him. They see the significance of who he is as a human being. More than just performance, they see him as a person. And the crowd in these moments look on as Babe Ruth takes the time to love on this child during the game. When it comes to Jesus, I think we have that certain tendency within us to treat him a lot like Babe Ruth. And people have these horrific and hateful thoughts about about who Christ is. But when you just take the moment to see why Christ came. And you just read the stories about the compassion of who Christ is. You can't help but behold the glory of his identity being revealed to us as people. We deal with this passage from a relational perspective. Not just between God, the Father, and God who is Jesus. But what this means for humanity, why Jesus would endure this on the cross. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he had compassion for the lost. It says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. In John 11 and verse 35, in the compassion of Jesus, he passes, or he, excuse me, he weeps at the passing of his friend uh, Lazarus. It gives us the shortest verse in the Bible. and, and, And Jesus wept. Even at the cross in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, while Jesus is being crucified, Jesus prays the prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Luke chapter thirteen and verse thirty four, he he whoops weep, excuse me weeps after Jerusalem. He says he says Father, how I've longed to to gather them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I, I long to gather you as as a, a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Or even my favorite passage that I didn't understand for the longest of time in John chapter two, Jesus goes into to the uh, Temple with whips and he drives people out of the temple. I call that going Old Testament, right? For the longest time, I've looked at that and looked at angry Jesus and wondered why. Well, how can I see a compassionate Jesus when when he's going into the temple and he's whipping people out of the temple? And then I began to study that particular section of Scripture and recognize what Jesus was doing here. In the temple, there were three sections of gathering places, three courtyards. One was for the Jewish men. One was for the Jewish women. And the outside of that was for the Gentiles. The Gentile location was for the place of those that were God-fears, those that hadn't converted to Judaism, but, but wanted the opportunity to gather near this temple and learn more about this God. During particular holidays, especially for the nation of Israel, they would go into the court of the Gentiles and when Jews would come to celebrate, like for instance, at the Passover, they would have a place to exchange currency, they would have a place to, to buy animals to sacrifice, and, and, and the Jews would put such a taxation or such an increase in charge when people would wait to get to Jerusalem to buy this that they were really robbing one another. They, you would come in to exchange your currency from where you were from to the city of Jerusalem, so you could use your currency. There, and they would uh, charge you a large amount of money or you go to get an animal to make a sacrifice and because you're close to the temple, they could charge you a lot of money and so they're taking advantage of each other so much so that this area of the court of the Gentiles became a place of commerce so that if a Gentile even wanted to gather around during these important festivals to recognize this God, they couldn't even get into this place because of all the sales that were taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus goes into this court and he drives people out, not because he didn't want people to be there, but because he wanted to be a God who welcomes all people to embrace him. Get a full picture of a gospel perspective on the goodness of Jesus when just for a moment you can take a step back and see how these stories connect together in the nature of who Christ is. You know, Sometimes we, we, we look at, at specific stories of, of, of Christ, and that's good, but other times we fail to see how those stories connect together in identifying for us the beauty of who Jesus is. Stories in Scripture tell us things like this. He's, he's greater than creation in Matthew 8, but the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The Bible tells us he's greater than spiritual forces in Mark chapter 1, and he cast out many demons. The Bible tells us he's greater than religion. He tells us in Matthew chapter 5, he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill it. In, in Luke chapter 4, sitting in, in, in the Jewish synagogue, he, he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, and as he reads, he closes it and sits down and says, this passage is being fulfilled to, before you today in me. One of my, my, my favorite stories happens in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus is walking through the streets and it tells us a woman who has been bleeding for years comes and touches the cloak or the fringe of Jesus' garment and, and she's healed. healed. But the important point of that story is not that this woman's healed by Jesus, but that this woman would have been defiled her whole life. She should have walked around in the streets of Jerusalem shouting, unclean, unclean, according to the law. And people wouldn't get near her. They wouldn't touch her. They wouldn't meet her needs because if they were to do so, they themselves would be unclean by the religious law. But yet this, this lady comes and touches Jesus. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean, this lady is now healed and validated. The story goes on in Luke chapter 8 and verse 55. Jesus goes into the room of a dead girl and he raises her from the dead. Not only does he touch a dead girl who is also considered unclean, Jesus has the power to resurrect because Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus said he's greater than the temple. Being in the temple, he calls himself the living water. Jesus says he's greater than the light. Being in the temple of which there's a dedication of lights, Jesus says he is greater than the light. Jesus, in reference to the temple itself, says he is the way, the truth, and the life, which was the name of the door into the the temple entryways. Jesus said in John chapter 2, he would destroy the temple, and in three days, he will build it up again. Jesus, rather than encouraging people to the temple, says, Come unto me, I, uh, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is greater than sin and death. In John chapter 16, it says, After his resurrection, I have overcome the world. Jesus fulfills all, everything when all else fails. Adam failed in the temptation from Satan in the garden. Jesus doesn't give into the temptation from Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Israel goes through the Jordan and deserts God. Jesus goes through the Jordan and follows the Father. Israel wanders for 40 years and falters. Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and follows. Israel rejects nations around them and Jesus embraces the nations to him. Man dies in sin and Jesus overcomes the grave. And all of the stories connecting the importance of who Jesus is and the compassion of which he is gi- given and the reason he endures this cup. The Bible tells us that Jesus came for both the Jew and the Gentile. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, Jesus calls the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The Bible goes on and tells us in Luke chapter 10, Jesus then calls the 70. The 70 represents the world. In Genesis, the Tower of Babel, when man was building the Tower of Babel, the Bible tells us that God created the languages to confuse the people. They were pursuing their own glory rather than pursuing God. And God confuses their languages and they disperse into different people groups throughout the world. And and Jewish custom has taught that from those people groups came 70 languages, 70 nations. And in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus calls the 70, Jesus is saying he is coming for the nations. Perhaps one of the most interesting passages that communicates Jesus' desire for people happens in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 6, at the end of of Mark chapter 6, I believe it's in in verse 43, it specifically tells us that that Jesus fed 5,000 from a few loaves of bread. In Mark chapter 8, in the beginning of chapter 8, and in verse 8, it tells us that Jesus feeds 4,000 a few loaves of bread. Why are these two miracles, and why are they tied so closely together? Jesus gives insight to that in Mark chapter 8 and verse 19. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up and they said to him 12 and when i broke the 7 for the 4000 how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up and they said to him 7 and he was saying to them do you not yet understand no i don't <laughs> what does that mean the the key behind what jesus is communicating is one, found in the number of baskets he picks up, and two, found in the location in which this miracle takes place. You know, when Jesus performs this miracle of feeding thousands, you think in the context of what happens here. They didn't have commercial refrigerators and commercial ovens. I mean, to fix food for more than 10 people would have been miraculous. And to throw off a party for 50 people would have been a miracle. But to do this for thousands how could Jesus do that? And what does it say? And some people will take this passage and say, well, it tells us that Jesus is, is sufficient, right? I mean, Jesus with, with no possibility of meeting these people's needs by, by human uh, ability, he still does. And it points to the nature of his deity and Jesus is, is sufficient. And so trust in Jesus because, because he is sufficient to meet all of your needs. And I would say, yes, yes, that's true. Why exactly did Jesus point to the results of these baskets? Twelve baskets and seven baskets. When Jesus feeds the people and they collect twelve baskets, He's in a predominantly Gentile, or excuse me, predominantly Jewish area. He's teaching the twelve tribes of Israel His sufficiency as the God-man to provide Them what they need. When Jesus retrieves the seven baskets, now he's in a Gentile area. He's just returned from Tyre. And Gentiles are following him on the trip from Tyre back to Jerusalem. And the number of seven in the Bible is a number of completeness, it's a number for the world, it's a number to recognize the fullness of of God. And not only is Jesus saying to the the Jewish world that he is more than enough, he's now saying to the Gentiles as well. I provide. I am what you need. And it's incredible to me that Jesus does this for us when you consider we're enemies to him. In Romans 5.10, the Bible says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of a son, much more having been reconciled, he shall be saved or we shall be saved by his life. Jesus, if the separation, if if your prayer is, uh, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me? And you're looking at this cup and there's such anguish in it, why in the world would you endure that? And the answer is because Jesus, in his compassion, is compelled by his love to give his life for you. And the Gospels illustrate that all the way through in the sufficiency of who Christ is in being able to meet the need of both Jew and Gentile on our behalf, even while we are enemies of God, he reconciled us to him through his death on the cross. Maybe I should say for me, um, one of the most beautiful pictures, I think, in all of the Bibles in Revelation. And can I tell you, um, when it comes to Revelation, please remember it's not Revelations, it's Revelation, right? Um, We butcher this book with things like blood moons. And um, the beauty of this book is it's a worship book. When God gives us a future picture of who he is, for us as people that follow Jesus, it's intended to be a picture of hope. And for those who reject Jesus, it's intended to be a picture of warning. But Revelation more than anything is about God's glory. It's a worship book of Jesus. I don't think there's any better way John could have painted the picture of Jesus in eternity than what he does in the book of Revelation. When we see him face to face. And the reason is when you read the book of Revelation over 25 times within the book Jesus is referred to As a lamb. In chapter 5 and verse 13 it says this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea. And all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In the picture of Revelation chapter 5. It's all things created now worshiping our creator. And Jesus is pictured as a lamb. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John started his book, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Revelation, when John writes Revelation, he goes back to the reference of this lamb and he recognizes the glory of this lamb though he was slain, how glorious he has become. Why is this important for us? When you consider this lamb, and you think of all the things that, that makes Jesus worthy of praise and provokes our heart to worship. I think this phrase lamb best identifies it for us as people. And the Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. Jesus was a leader. Jesus was a a, a king. Jesus also came to serve. He was big, and he also did big things. We, talk, we call the type of thing that Jesus did, I know we've used hypostatic union and, and kenosis and incarnation, but when you look at what Jesus has done and the way that he gets off his throne in the form of flesh to serve us as people, we call that servant leadership. In fact, in Christianity, sometimes we'll say, you know, you need to be a a servant leader. You need to be a servant leader for Christ to demonstrate him in this world, which we're all cool in saying that until someone treats us like a servant. So I wanted to define it by my own terms, more from the words I say, not rather than by the the life I lead, but servant leadership is the the hip term to phrase for ourselves as it relates to Jesus. But real servant leadership respects everyone, including your enemies, In fact, what Jesus taught us to do is that Jesus is not about wiping out his enemies. Rather, Jesus and his coming was about winning his enemies over because myself would be included as an enemy of God, needing reconciled to him and thanks be to Christ for what he has done for me. Truth is, if you resent someone, you can't win them over. Which is why the Bible says to us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse twenty four: The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. Not to resent those who hate us, but rather will get uh, you will get resentful and not have ears to listen to to reconcile enemies to God. He is the King who conquered. Yet he is the servant who slaughtered. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, Father, but your will be done. I think that passage speaks beautifully into the relationship between the Father and the Son. But it also speaks beautifully, or, and it also speaks beautifully in the desire that Jesus has. For you in experiencing a relationship with Him. How important that statement should say to all of us. God, I need to see you for who you are. And God, I need to love you as you are. And Jesus, if this relationship was so important that you were willing to die for it, how important is it for me to embrace it, knowing what you endured on my behalf? It's my encouragement to you this morning. And take the opportunity in the picture of who Christ is to appreciate the opportunity you have to behold his glory. He's come in the flesh for you.